0: I have a brief statement to read to you in response to last weekend's inflammatory remarks. (laughs) I'd like your attention, please. I've had many people tell me they are anxiously awaiting my response to see how I'm going to get Jim back. I admit that I had many thoughts about things I could do to get back at him. I could tell you of all the times he has accidentally said things that were terribly offensive, but I only have 35 minutes to teach this weekend. I thought of describing for you the many gastrointestinal issues Jim has had while teaching, but again, there are far too many occasions to document. I thought of putting Jim's personal cell phone number in the weekend program for all future complaints. Might be there, you look closely. Instead, I've decided to adopt the attitude of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and simply turn the other cheek. Also, I need to publicly say to Jim, I have no idea who set your bushes on fire. Bro, we only live a block from each other, man. Come on. I know where you live. Hey, um, it's, uh, it's been a really fun series. We're going we're to kind of cap things off today as we transition into, into another series. But let me ask you a question. Anyone been watching the Olympics? Yeah, I've been, I've been. yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I've been been falling asleep every night. I can't stay awake much later than 10 o'clock. And so I've been trying to stay awake as long as I can, but I've been falling asleep like every night watching the Olympics. And that was the uh, official uh, Olympic theme song the band just did by Muse. And, And I love watching this stuff that we only get to see like every four years. Like, to be honest with you, I'm a huge basketball fan, but I haven't watched any basketball in the Olympics because I can see LeBron James play like 82 times a year. I only get to see Michael Phelps swim every four years only get to see the amazing things that the, the athletes do and things like like track and field like Usain Bolt every four years and and the beautiful amazing things that happen in gymnastics like that whole vault thing they do. That terrifies me. Like that's just, that's terrifying. Or we were talking earlier about uh, the guys who do diving and they do the handstand on top of the 10 meter platform and then do the front like tuck and roll towards the platform. And every time I'm just waiting for somebody's head to hit the platform and erupt like a watermelon, like that's what I'm waiting to happen. I mean, it's it just, my, my heart beats faster every time I watch the Olympics. And it really is beautiful to see what human beings can accomplish. And better yet, at the end of every competition, they hand out medals. There's like. Winners and losers, whoever thought of that. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's awesome to see the level of greatness that people can achieve. And oftentimes that has a couple different effects on people. Sometimes it has a really motivational effect, inspiring effect on people. And so it creates in us this desire to win or this desire to achieve more. And that's my, my son, Eli, like he's been watching stuff with me all, all the Olympics long. And every time we've gone to the pool, ever since the Olympics started, he'll get to the edge of the pool. And before he jumps in, he'll do the whole like Michael Phelps stretch thing. And everybody, everybody laughs. And, but he's like as serious as he can be. And then he puts on his goggles and they, does a belly flop into the pool. It's just it's, it's really cool. And, but sometimes it has the effect of feeling like greatness is something that's only reserved for those who've been, I don't know, like endowed with it, like given it. Uh, one of the definitions of great or greatness that applies today is simply this, fame or recognized superiority. H- have you seen the Nike commercials, Achieve Your Greatness? Uh, check this one out. And in case the accent threw you off, let me, let me read that to you again. It, says, it said this, Greatness It's just something we made up. Uh, somehow we've come to believe that greatness is a gift reserved for a chosen few, for prodigies, for superstars, and the rest of us can only stand by watching. You can forget that. Greatness is not some rare DNA strand. It's not some precious thing. Greatness is no more unique to us than breathing. We are all capable of it. All of us. And we hopefully wipe away the tears from our eyes and put on our Nikes, of course, and go out and chase our greatness. And in one sense, to be honest with you, I love that commercial. I mean, the first time I saw it, I thought it was brilliant. It's really well done. But in another sense, I think it misses the mark badly. Really, really badly. Is greatness something I can find on a road? Is it something I can discover in a weight room or playing a sport? Is greatness something that I need to be pursuing or chasing? And where can greatness actually be found? See, all summer long, we've been looking at the lives of these two people who traditionally and historically have been called great men of the Bible or Bible heroes. But what we've been learning, if you've been around here for the past several weeks, is we've looked at the lives of Moses and Joseph. Joseph and Moses is that they're actually really ordinary people. People who experience ups and downs. They have some good moments. They have some bad moments. And I don't think there's been a single week where anybody's really walked out of here thinking of Joseph or Moses going, Wow, that guy was really, really Great, especially not last week. I mean, you could argue some of the other weeks, but last week, I mean, come on. I mean, Moses, remember this? Last week has this abnormal, extraordinary, miraculous encounter with God. Once in a lifetime thing where God speaks to him out of, and I'll choose my words carefully, out of a burning bush, right? And Moses simply comes up with excuse after excuse after excuse to not do what God is catch it commanding him to do. God didn't ask him to go back to Egypt and lead his people out of slavery. He told him to go back to Egypt. And God tells him, listen, Moses, your time of training is up you've been out here in the middle of nowhere amongst these sheep for the past like 40 years or so, and your time of training is up and it's time for you to get back in the game. It's like like Rocky when he goes to train in the middle of Siberia to face the Russian. You know what I'm talking about? Any Rocky IV people out there? It's time for Moses to go face the Russian, or in this case, Pharaoh. All right? Same thing. All right? Look at where we pick up in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, and see what goes down at this point in the story. All right? Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. This is interesting because Moses doesn't even give his father-in-law, he's also his boss, he's the one who owns all the sheep that he shepherds, he doesn't even give him the whole story. There's no mention of God speaking to him, of a burning bush, there's no mention of any of the miraculous stuff that went down, none of that, and I kind of wonder why. I wonder if it's because he's afraid that his father-in-law will take back his daughter and tell him to quit eating the mushrooms he finds while he's out grazing in the fields. Right? Like, man, you're you're crazy. What are you talking about? But in some ways, I also think that Moses is hoping that his father-in-law pushes back on him. I think Moses is hoping that Jethro is going to go, "No, no, 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 no. But that's not what Jethro does. That's not what he gets. So pick it up in verse 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now you catch that last sentence? I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. If I'm Moses, I'm going, excuse me, what? Wait, wait, time out, God. I'm going back to Egypt for what then? What's the purpose of this whole exercise? This whole thing seems really stupid if that's how it's going to play out. And in this, we get the first clue as to what God's main objective is in this story and what we're going to see unfold for the next several weeks in here when we launch a new series. Let's just play it out. Let, suppose that Moses goes back to Egypt, goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just for some reason goes, okay, take them. Go ahead, head on out. Bye, we don't need you anyway. Suppose that's what happens. If that's the way it plays out, who will get the credit? Who will have the spotlight shined on them? Who will, who will come out smelling like roses? Who will look like the hero of the story? Or the way the Bible would put it, who will get the glory If that's the way it plays out. And the answer is simply this. Not God. Not God. Maybe Pharaoh. Right? Maybe, Maybe Pharaoh for being such a kind hearted philanthropic person. All of a sudden has a change of heart. And goes oh slavery's wrong. I should let you go. Maybe Pharaoh. Maybe Moses for being so brave as to go before a dictator. And demand that the people be let go. But make no mistake. God would not be the one getting the glory, if that's the way it played out. And what we're going to be learning for the next several weeks is simply this. God wants to make sure that his greatness is put on display for all to see. Hold on to that. File that away for tonight and the next several weeks. So Moses heads back and along the way he connects with his older brother Aaron who's going to be kind of his right hand man in in this whole kind of uh, adventure they're about to go on. And then Moses and Aaron gather the elders, the leaders of the nation of Israel who are in slavery in Egypt, gathers them together and this is what happens. Look at verse 29. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So Moses and Aaron go before the people. Good news, everybody. God's heard your situation. He's concerned about your situation. He's going to deliver you from your circumstances. This horrible slavery is going to come to an end. And the people believed and the people worshipped God. And of course they did. Of course they worshiped God. That's good news. Think about it. There's like two and a half million people who are enslaved in Egypt at this point, And they've all probably prayed for God to deliver them from slavery. I don't know. A million times. So this is the answer to millions upon millions upon millions of prayers. This is what they've hoped for. This is what they've longed for. This is what they've dreamed of. This is a very good moment when they're told it's actually going to happen. And honestly, some of us, we've had moments like that. Right? It's that moment when the test comes back and they say, you know what? The cancer is gone. That moment when you're sitting in the doctor's office and the ultrasound finds a heartbeat or when your husband comes back or when your kids come to their senses, it's moments like that where a lot of us, we bow down, fall on our face and thank God and worship God. It's kind of a natural reaction for a lot of us. So things are going really, really well for Moses right now. He's like, all right, this is good. This is going well. Moses and Aaron, they have the support of the people. And now it's showtime. It's showtime. It's time to go before Pharaoh. Uh, This is not the same one that Moses grew up with That's kind of his adoptive grandfather. This is a a different one. And this Pharaoh thinks he's God. He does. He he thinks he's God and he's worshipped by his people. And because he thinks he's God, he, he is concerned primarily with establishing his greatness. So much so that he's having city walls built and pyramids and statues and, and all kinds of things built as a tribute to his greatness. And all those things are being built on the backs of Hebrew slaves who are building those things with bricks. Look at this in chapter five, verse one afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. That they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. So they boldly go before Pharaoh. Let my people go because God says so. The I am says so. As we learned last week. Pharaoh, who thinks he's God, goes, who's I am? And why should I care? Why should I worry about him? And after all, any God who would identify with a wretched bunch of slaves like you is no God worth fearing. So here's my thoughts, Aaron, Moses. How about mm, no? How about no? How about I don't let my whole task force go? And Moses and Aaron respond. Look at verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews is met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. In other words, pretty please... That's all they got. It's like, pretty please? Maybe, you know, change your mind. Now Pharaoh's really mad because he feels like they're wasting his time. Look at this, verse 4. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day, look at this, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let their work be heavier. Let it be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So because of what Moses has to say to Pharaoh, Pharaoh intensifies their work and keeps the quotas the same. And he makes it absolutely impossible for them to meet their quotas because bricks required straw to solidify correctly in order for them to actually build something with it. He says, no longer are we going to provide you with the straw, but you've got to go find the straw. But we're going to tell you that you have to keep making the same number of bricks. And just one of Pharaoh's pyramids had to use 24.5 million bricks. It's a lot of bricks. So one Egyptian writer described these Hebrew slaves who had to make bricks and he wrote it down. This is from a long, long time ago. Listen to this. He is dirtier than vines or pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt is going to ruin. He's miserable. His sides ache. His arms are destroyed. He washes himself only once a season. He's simply wretched through and through. That was the Hebrew people. And these people who quickly believed Moses and Aaron and worshiped God and who were behind Moses and Aaron are now punished because of Moses. Let me ask you a question. Which is more painful to live without hope or to catch a glimpse of hope to only have it disappear? That's been some of our stories. Maybe you've been there. You, you thought you were out of the woods. You thought the storm was over. You thought the depression had subsided. You thought the pain had gone away. You thought your circumstances had changed. You thought things were looking up only to have things get worse. And that, that's when our faith is tested, is it not? When circumstances get worse, it's one thing to worship God when things change for the better, but what do we do when things get worse? Let's watch, watch what happens. The Hebrew foremen, all right, who are in charge of instilling these quotas on people, they themselves come before Pharaoh and they're going, hey, come on, you can't do this to us. You can't make us w- w- do this kind of work and require this from us. And they go to Pharaoh and they're like, this is impossible task that you've laid on us. And, and Pharaoh basically responds back and says, it's not my fault, it's Moses' fault. Your leader brought this on you. And so when these foremen leave Pharaoh's presence, it just so happens that Moses and Aaron are waiting on them. And this is how it plays out. Look at verse 20 of chapter five. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Basically, this is your fault, Moses. This is your fault. You brought this on us. And if you're Moses, you're going, man, this is my worst nightmare. This is exactly, God, why I said I shouldn't come to begin with. These people who so quickly believed in you have now turned on me and turned on you. And all of a sudden, for Moses, all those leadership lessons he learned tending sheep out in the middle of nowhere are coming into play. And the question becomes, hey, hey, Moses, what are you going to do with a bunch of uncooperative people? How are you going to lead them now? And he doesn't do well. Look at this, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, "O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. He gets to the question we always ask, which is why, 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 why? And on top of that, he accuses God of doing evil. Why'd you let this happen? I told you not to send me. This is your fault. You've dropped the ball, God. You ever had that conversation with god i have you know jim mentioned last week that the bible says repeatedly over and over again that god is slow to anger and i would say this that's true in fact he's much more slow to anger than i am he's much more slow to anger than a lot of you are i mean let's be really honest if you were god in this situation and moses is throwing this little temper tantrum in front of you what would you do i'd hit him with a lightning bolt and start over the new person that's, I mean, that's just me. Maybe, maybe you're better than You are better than me. But that's what I would do, all right? I would just zap him, start over with someone new. Why? Because I don't need you, Moses. I'm God. I can do whatever I want to do. I don't need you. Yet Moses, yet God, puts up with him. As he throws this little temper tantrum, and he listens to him kick and scream, and he's been doing that with people since the beginning of time. God has an unbelievable amount of patience. Even when we're throwing our tantrums, and let's just be honest, sometimes when we're pointing fingers at God, we have no idea what we're talking about. I mean, sometimes my my kids will throw a tantrum and I'll look at them and go, you have no idea what you're talking about. You're three. You can't know stuff. You're three, all right? That has to be the way God looks at us sometimes. Yet God listens, he listens to us when we throw our tantrums, and I'm just amazed at the patience of God. Now, look at how God responds in chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he'll send them out, and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant, my promise with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians have hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. He doesn't answer the question. Did you notice? He doesn't answer the why question. He simply reminds Moses of who he is, which is much better, actually. He says, let me remind you of who I am. I'm the God who revealed myself to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, famous people in the Bible, your your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. And he says, but when I revealed myself to them, they knew me by a certain name, and that was the Lord Almighty, which in Hebrew is El Shaddai. Which simply means the God who provides, the God who delivers on his promises, which is a very good thing. But what he's saying to Moses is simply this. They had promises to hold on to, Moses. You have me to hold on to. I'm going to be with you. I am with you. And you're going to see the promises that I made to them that they never saw come to fruition. You're going to actually get to see those things. Watch this. Look at verse 6. Lord makes three huge huge promises here one is a promise of redemption he says this the language is this he says I will bring you out I will deliver you I will redeem you makes it very clear and all these statements are made in what is called the past perfect tense in other words for God it might as well have already happened it's non-negotiable, it will happen, it's as good as done. God's saying, listen, your circumstances are going to change. I promise, I'm going to draw you out, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to, take, I'm going to take you from something really, really good into something, or from something really, really bad into something really, really good. I'm going to take you out of your slavery. And then he promises this, he promises adoption. He says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. God's saying, not only will I take you out of your circumstances, but I'll be with you in the midst of your circumstances. I'll be with you in the journey. I mean, that's what adoption is. When you adopt someone, you're saying, listen, I'll take you out of that and I'll take you into my care. I'll take you under my guidance. I'll take you under my roof. I'll take you into my house. I'll be with you like a, like a father. God's going to do that. Then finally he makes a promise of grace. He says, not only will I do all that, but I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you as a possession. He promises, listen, not only will I take you out of slavery, but I'm going to put you into something better. So I'm not just going to take something away, I'm going to give you a gift. That's what grace is. God doesn't promise to simply take away your sin, to simply take away my shame, to simply take away our guilt. He also promises not only to remove our fears and our burdens, he promises to give us freedom and joy to replace all of those things. You see, grace is a gift and God promises it to his people. And God, I love it, at the very end of it, he signs his name as if this was a letter guaranteeing his promise when he says, I am the Lord. I am. When God makes a promise, he always delivers on his promise. He may not do it when you want him to or how you want him to, but he does it. So Moses... Does what God tells him to do. He goes back to the people and delivers the message. And this is how they respond. Look at verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Can you blame them? Can you blame them? When it says they didn't listen because of their broken spirit, that literally translates shortness of breath And as is often the case with Hebrew words and phrases that's supposed to paint a picture, and the picture that's supposed to paint for us is of a small child when something painful happens to them and they can't even gather their breath to cry. Have you ever seen this happen? This happens to my kids all the time. They'll like like hurt themselves and they'll get the pain face, but nothing comes out, right? For like, I've counted before, 10, 15 seconds sometimes, right? And then finally... (gasps) They catch their breath, and then comes this just blood-curdling scream, right? That's the picture that's supposed to be painted for us here. Have you ever been in that moment? Have you ever been in that place where circumstances literally take the wind out of you? You can't speak. You can't even cry. You don't have the strength to believe anything. And I hear a lot of your stories all the time, and it's, it's unbelievable some of the, the hard, difficult circumstances so many of you find yourselves in. I know men in this church who've had their wives walk out on them, and not only walk out on them, but right into the arms of another man who they know, and then rub that in their faces daily. I know women in this church who desperately just want their husbands to step up and be a husband and a father worth following. And it just never seems to happen. And maybe there have been glimpses of hope along the way. But all that does is make it more painful when hope disappears. And I know people in our community who have people they love so, so desperately who, who suffer with addictions. And all they want, all they desperately want is for, for you to be delivered from your addiction. And, and, and you just feel so helpless in those moments. It just takes the wind right out of you. And so here's Moses. No one's listening. He's got a tired flock of people who no longer even respond to his voice. He feels like a failed shepherd who calls his sheep and they don't even get up. And he knows that, but it's easier to point a finger at God and blame him than to deal with his worst fears being confirmed. And God simply tells him, just go back to Pharaoh and tell him again. Just go back to Pharaoh and tell him again. And see how this exchange goes with Moses. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips, which means incapable. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He goes, listen, the people aren't listening to me, God, because I'm not good enough. I'm not great enough. I'm not a captivating speaker. There's nothing great about me. And in this moment where Moses is throwing yet kind of another little tantrum, what do you expect God to do? Do you expect God to kind of stop and go, doggone it, Moses, people like you. You are great. You are special. You're exceptional, actually. You deserve a trophy. Let me show you this Nike commercial. Is that what you expect God to do in that moment? Because it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because this is not about Moses. Moses. This is not about Moses, yet Moses in this moment, at this point in the story, still thinks it is. He still thinks it's about him. And it's really interesting, if you look at the rest of chapter 6 before chapter 7 starts, and chapter 7 is where all the cool stuff starts happening, the end of chapter 6 has a genealogy, a family tree of Moses and Aaron. And let me just give you a tip, the fastest way to put yourself to sleep at night is to read a genealogy especially in the Bible, all right? It's just ongoing, 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 but Oftentimes in the Bible, genealogies are strategically placed where they are for a reason. And the way that genealogies, family trees, were used in the ancient world, and still today often, is to point to your credentials. To go, listen, you should listen to me, you should give me credibility, because after all, look at what I come from. All right, And so that's kind of the general idea. But if you're Moses and you're trying to credential yourself, this is not what you want in print for the next several thousand years. Because his family tree is not a good one. Him and Aaron do not come from a good place. They come from second-rate stock and a really sordid family history with relatives who did really horrible things. There's all kinds of stuff in their past, like incest and brutality. They had cowards and liars in their past. In other words, the main point at this point in the story that the author wants you to understand, and by the way, the author is Moses, is simply this. Moses ain't much. Moses is not great. So anything that's about to happen has nothing to do with Moses' greatness. See, what Moses wants to make clear, right here at the end of chapter 6, before chapter 7 and all the fireworks ensue, which is going to be our next series, when, when that showdown and that confrontation between him and Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet, ensues, when the people of Israel get set free and they go through water and all these amazing things happen, Moses wants everyone who reads this for the next several thousand years to know one thing, Moses is not great. God is great. Moses is basically saying, he is the great I am and I am not. I am not. Write this down. The greatest thing about Moses is that he was used by a great God to do great things. The greatest thing about Moses was he was used by a great God to do great things. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph on your life and on my life? And by the way, when I say great things, I mean things like this. Things like she raised three kids on her own by the strength given to her by a great God. I mean things like that. I mean things like this. He provided for his family through a great God who provided for him. She served her neighbors and friends because of a great God who served her. Psalm 145.3 says it this way. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Psalm 150 verse 2 says this, Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. See, greatness is only found in God. And that's where the Nike commercial gets it all wrong. When it says greatness, it's just something we made up. No, it's not. Greatness is not something we made up. Greatness is something that exists and it pre-existed all of us. Or or when it says greatness is something we're all capable of. Sure it is when we get to pick that what greatness is. When we get to define what greatness is, then everybody's great. You can be great in your own way, right? Right? If greatness is, I don't know, rising to the challenge, if greatness is losing a few pounds, if greatness is reaching a goal, if greatness is facing adversity, if greatness is winning a gold medal, if greatness is helping someone in need. But when greatness is defined as what God is, that's a game changer. And then we come to the realization that we are not capable of greatness. And we don't like that because we live in an egocentric culture that thinks it's all about us. Rick Warren, who wrote a very famous book called The Purpose Driven Life, if I'm not mistaken, the very first line in the book says, it's not about you. And I hate to break it to you. He's right. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about God. And guess what? What we're going to learn for the next several weeks in here is that's a very good thing for you and a very good thing for me that God is all about himself and what we're going to see in the coming weeks are the links that God will go to to make sure that he is seen as great and that he is seen as who he is and we'll see that God is gracious enough to reveal that anyone or anything else that we would lean our life against put our hope in or put our faith in cannot deliver what we hope it delivers and that he's the only one who delivers on his promises see here's what I think I think greatness that's not what you and I are searching for anyway and if greatness is what we find, I don't think it would satisfy us. You know how I know that? Because greatness fades, it spoils, it goes away. Here's how I know I, I got a book in the mail the other day. I'm, I'm, I like boxing a lot, and I, I got this book called The 100 Greatest Boxers of All Time. And I, I know a fair amount about boxing, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't know who half of those guys were. I knew who half of them were. Or, or ask, Ask Muhammad Ali about how greatness fades. used to stand with his arms raised and scream at the top of his lungs, I am the greatest. And he cannot raise his hand to his mouth to feed himself now. That's just reality. Or let's do this. Let's ask Usain Bolt in eight years what greatness is. And he'll pull out a gold medal and dust it off and go, I used to run the 100 meter dash in 9.5 seconds. Now I do it in 11. I used to be great. Greatness fades, but we'll settle for it, won't we? That's the way C.S. Lewis put it. He, C.S. Lewis said, listen, people like you and me, we are far too easily satisfied. Lewis, he, he, he compared us to an ignorant child who's content to play in mud puddles in the slums when what we have available to us is a vacation at the sea. We uh, we went on vacation a couple weeks ago. We were in Jackson, Wyoming. If you've ever been up there and seen the Grand Tetons, like they're amazing. And we got to swim in mountain streams and glacier-fed lakes and look at the Grand Tetons. It was just incredible and spectacular. We drive home at the end of vacation. We go in the backyard, and my three-year-old looks at me and asks me to fill up the baby pool. And I'm just like, we were swimming in mountain streams and and lakes that were fed by glaciers at the base of some of the most beautiful mountains in the world and now you want to swim in the baby pool. But we'll settle, won't we? For temporary things like greatness, which is a poor substitute for something better. And that something is joy. It's called Joy. And joy satisfies. Joy doesn't run dry. And please don't mistake joy for happiness. It's much deeper than that. Joy doesn't depend on your circumstances. And joy can only be found in seeing that God is great. You know why that provides joy? Because that takes some serious pressure off. Because if God is that great, and if God is that good, and if God is that strong, and if God is that capable, guess what? I don't have to be God for anybody. All I have to do is be who God created me to be. And that's the lesson Moses is learning. Is that God was going to be the one to deliver his people because God is great. And Moses was free to just be who God created him to be. See, there is great joy in discovering how great God is. And being able to say, he is the great I am and I am not. Psalm 16:11 says it this way, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You catch that phrase, fullness of joy? That means more than enough. That means unending, never-ending joy. While we were on vacation last week and I swam in those freezing cold lakes and I looked at those beautiful mountains, I have these moments of going, man, God is great. And that's a worshipful moment full of joy. And when I watch my kids, when I watch them play and when I watch them dance and when I watch them swim and when I watch them sleep and when I watch them just sit on my lap sometimes, I just have these moments where I go, man, God is great. And those are worshipful moments full of joy. And I came back here last night, last week after vacation. I sit in here and I, I, I sing with my family and my friends in this place. And those are worshipful moments full of joy where you recognize God is great. And what I've learned is this. When I simply fall in love with the gifts that I've been given and forget about the giver of those gifts. When I fall in love with the gift instead of the giver, my joy runs out. Runs dry. But when I go beyond the gift and fall in love with the giver, my joy never runs dry. See, we're born with this deep level of dissatisfaction in us. And the author of Ecclesiastes puts it this way. He says, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. He said eternity in the hearts of men. That means he's put this yearning, this longing for something eternal, something that will last, something that won't run out or run dry or spoil in our hearts. And because we have this emptiness in us, we're always searching to fill it. And the problem is you and I so often fall into the temptation to fill the eternal with the temporary. And we'll sometimes give literally everything in our life to obtain something temporary, like our own greatness or a gold medal or something like that. But the eternal longing In our hearts, can only be satisfied by something or someone eternal. And I would say that's a great God. 2 Corinthians 4 6 puts it this way For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, the lesson the Hebrew people are going to learn is to love the giver more than the gifts he gives. And they'll learn that joy is only found in the one who brings you from darkness to light, from death to life. And that's a lot of our stories, isn't it? Let's be honest. Some of us, you you were in the midst of, of, of darkness that maybe nobody else in this room can even fathom. Yet God, in his own initiative, shone his light into your heart. And when he did that, who did he reveal? And I bet he revealed his son, Jesus. His life, his love, his sacrifice on the cross, his conquering of sin and death on your behalf. And what has he also given you? One of Jesus's most famous followers put it this way. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious, what's the word? Joy. For you're receiving the goal of your faith. That's a real gold medal. the Salvation of your souls. And it's this lesson that I think God is teaching all of us, that to find him and to enjoy him is to find our joy. And that joy can only be found when we acknowledge God for how great he is. And when we thank him, that he would call people like you and me to find him and to worship him and to love him for how great he is. See, there is a day coming where everyone will see just how great God is and will worship him. And I say, this is just my thoughts. Let's not wait Let's start tonight. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and you are a great God. You are powerful beyond measure. You are amazing, God. And when we compare ourselves to each other, and when we have little competitions, and when we rank ourselves, we can feel pretty great and pretty special. But God, when we compare ourselves to you, this is no contest, but God, our... Our worth and our value is found in the fact that you, a great God, would send his one and only son to die on a cross for us. And because of that, Father, because you didn't seek to condemn us, but that you, you wanted to save us, because of that we worship you. God, we love you and we want to worship you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.